Thank you so much for joining me on Teach Me How to Money. We have a fantastic guest this week. It's John Schwartz. He is a New York Times writer and the author of Tell Us the Name of Your Book. This is the year I put my financial life in order. Well, first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself, and then you're going to tell us why was this the year to put your financial life in order. All right. I'm a newspaper reporter. I've been a newspaper and magazine reporter since I got out of college. And I've tackled lots of difficult topics. In that time, I've been a science writer. I've written about climate change, the space program, engineering, lots of things that require me to learn hard subjects. But during that time, I basically avoided thinking much about my own finances. I really avoided it because I don't like thinking about my finances. I don't like thinking about money. I don't like thinking about retirement. I don't like thinking about dying. <laughs> and of course, I start laughing. But I think it's very common. Most people, it's easier to think about the, the complex things we're interested in, like our hobbies or what we do for a living, to, to think about ourselves, our finances, and our own mortality. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and also, these difficult topics, like how is the space shuttle built, and what are the risk factors, and what are the critical elements, I was being paid to learn those things. Nobody was paying me to think about my 401k. And so I like that, that I could put aside. Okay. And, you know, I'm fundamentally a procrastinator and lazy. <laughs> and so I didn't look. I didn't open the, uh, the Vanguard envelopes. I didn't sure. know how much was in my pension. I didn't know how much I was going to get in Social Security. I hadn't gotten a will. And how old, how old are you now? I, I am now – I just turned 61. Really? Yeah. You look fabulous. Well, thank you. I'd like to think of myself as well-preserved <laughs> on the way to, you know, that next thing. Get out of here. Yeah, well. But what made this year the year – well, it was really last year when you wrote the book. But what came to a head that you were like, I got to get it together? It was really worrying about retirement. Okay. It was really worrying about seeing people all around me in journalism – being shown the door and thinking, look, I love this, but I could be next. You don't know. Sure. So if something happened, how are you set up? You never checked. And so it was time to check. I was still very reluctant to do it, but I used my method, which is I got an assignment to do it. I agreed to write a story for for a special section of the Times about checking my retirement. All of a sudden, I needed to do it. Oh, that's interesting. Well, this is this is what motivates me. I can't do anything really for myself, but if somebody's telling me to do something, I'm there. And so was your wife more interested in finance or was she also like, we'll just do it another day? Jean didn't want to think about these things either. Interesting. She was pretty reluctant. At the same time, she is totally on our day-to-day money. Sure. Jean is the one writing the checks. Jean is the one figuring how much we've got till the next paycheck. Jean is completely on top of the college loans and where we stand, the car loans. She pays attention to all of that. But the long-term stuff, death. (laughs) All those things. She's a little like me. I mean, we're together for a reason. Yeah. And so when I said, I'm going to try to figure this out, she said, okay. And when I said, you know, we're going to do it together because I want you to comment as I'm working on this. Sure. She said, okay. It's good to have a buddy system. It, it is a buddy system because, you know, I was doing it for her too. Yeah. And so we took that path together. And then when that story came out, and it got a pretty good response, and people, a lot of people said, 
I can't look. I can't. I, I'm, I'm just the same. I can't look. Absolutely. I don't think people talk about that enough, the not being able to look, the putting the envelopes in the drawer. I think that's a real segment of our population that I can relate to. Money makes people crazy. It does make people crazy. And we're and afraid of it. It's an emotionally fraught thing. It certainly is. I believe that. Yeah. And, and so once I had the assignment to really look, I looked. And remember, the smartest investment managers in the world tell you don't look. Right. Right? But interesting. They, they will – because they will say – if you look all the time, you'll make yourself crazy. Then you'll think, oh, God, the stock market dropped 300 points. I need to sell. I need to buy. I need to – and their advice generally is buy and hold yes. for a long, long time. But I didn't even know if the stuff I bought starting at the age of 27 was good. I didn't know whether these were the best choices for me at 27 or at 57. Sure. So there's not looking and there's not looking. Yeah. There's not, <laughs> there's not looking and pathologically avoiding. Oh, my goodness. That's amazing. Of course. And that's where I was. What were you afraid of finding? Well, finding that I was not going to make it. Uh, finding that we were going to be living in really reduced circumstances. And we're cheap. I mean, it's not like we were living high. But I like to buy a good steak to grill on sure. the weekend. And we have had times in our lives when I couldn't do that, when I couldn't have even bought the grill and certainly couldn't have bought a good steak. We have had times in our lives when we've been really, really tight. And what I was afraid of was going back Absolutely. to those times. I mean, we had times when we had nothing and it was terrific. When we were students together in Austin, we met, Gene and I met when we were both 18. So I know. But, <laughs> but we met when we were both 18 and we had nothing, which was terrific because living in Austin in the 1970s, you know, we could look around the house, dig in the sofa cushions, find enough change, go out, buy an avocado, share the avocado. Life is great. That's true. When you're young, it's, you know, you, know, it, you don't need as much to have fun and to have love. You know, you just need one, need a, a bed and some money for pizza and some music to listen to. I mean, that's what I remember. That's exactly right. And so when later you hear Robert Earl Keen sing that you're young and reckless and finding things to do <laughs> that we could do for free, you know, that was us. That's what, that's what we were doing. That was good poor. That was, that was not having much and being okay with it. And you didn't have any debt at the time either. No, nothing really to speak of. By our 40s, we had serious debt, real financial problems, and Gene was telling me how much money I had till the next paycheck, and it wasn't enough to buy lunch. Stuff like that. So you mentioned lunch. that in your book that when you were in your late 30s, early 40s, things had gotten very tight for you guys. That's right. And, you know, and at that point, as I say in the book, uh, at that point, I'm – searching the menu items on the Washington Post cafeteria line. And, uh, and I find that look, French fries with gravy is less than two bucks because it's just a thing of, of fries and then they'll put the gravy on it. And uh, French fries with gravy is this little bomb of fat and salt and it's incredibly satisfying and you're not hungry for the rest of the day. That's tough. It's tough to be in your late 30s, early 40s and have to, have to go through that. And you had kids at the time. I had kids. You have and, kids. still have kids. <laughs> right. I had kids. Now I have grown kids, but I had kids. And we were doing for them and sacrificing for us. Sure. You know, I was eating fries and gravy. We were sending them to summer camp. We had priorities. Sure. You were putting their happiness first. Exactly right. And, you know, I mean, 
French fries with gravy are pretty good. <laughs> you, know, you drop a little Tabasco on them, something like that. I, I may eat some right after our interview. So tell us about how did you get out of that time in your life? How did you manage it? Part of it was getting out from under the biggest financial burden we had, which was in our late 30s, we had bought an apartment in New York City. And we had bought it at what sounds like an unbelievably good price today. We bought it for under $140,000. Sure. And then several years in, I got a job offer in Washington, D.C. to go from Newsweek to the Washington Post. And you can't say no to that. And I wanted to do it. And it was great. And the Post even said, look, for the first X number of months, we're going to supplement your income with a, a, a bump of 900 a month to help you pay for that apartment until you can sell it. And I said, that's great. The only problem there is that it turned out we could not sell it, that because of the structure of co-ops in New York, because oh, yes. the market, you know, all the water had gone out of the market, things were, things were dropping, and because this particular building had a very low conversion rate. Oh, my goodness. Those were the days in New York when you couldn't sell your apartment. You couldn't, you couldn't sell an And it was a terrific apartment, huge, three bedrooms. It was up in Washington Heights. It was so lovely. But – Every realtor I talked to said, no bank will give a loan on this apartment because the co-op conversion hasn't gone well. It's, it's insufficiently converted and you got more renters than buyers. And These are things you don't even think about. I didn't know. I mean, in retrospect, I should have known. I could have found out. I could have found out that it wasn't a great idea to buy a building so undersubscribed. At the same time, what a bargain. That's, you know, maybe that's yeah. exactly when you buy. Yeah. People, some people say, oh, that's an opportunity. Exactly right. And, you know, we had a great time in the neighborhood. We knew all the shopkeepers, but we couldn't sell it. We became landlords. The tenant that I had in the apartment just stopped paying the rent. And New York law gives him a lot of protection for a lot of very good reasons. Oh, my there goodness. Are, there are terrible vampire landlords in New York. They do awful things. You want to protect people. But you weren't one of them. No. I'm not. <laughs> I, I, I walked here. I was in the sun. Yeah. I am not a vampire. You are not a I'm vampire. I'm not a vampire. So, so, so that put you really underwater, well, like covering and, all those expenses. Yeah, we had some savings. The savings were killed. The $900 a month ran out. And even that wasn't as much as we were paying for mortgage and maintenance. Oh, my goodness. It was just keeping us sort of treading water. So very quickly, we were busted. And uh, family members were saying, this is why people file for bankruptcy, and that's what you need to do. Oh, my goodness. Which, you know, from like a father-in-law is not a great thing to hear, oh, except sure. he's a law professor. Absolutely. He's and there's, there's brilliant. No sh- he's and there's no shame in it, but it feels very shameful it, at the time. It, it felt awful. It felt like ashes in the mouth, total failure. It was awful. But I start calling bankruptcy lawyers. And I call the first bankruptcy lawyer at the recommendation of one of my buddies at work. And, and the first bankruptcy lawyer is really nice, but she says, you're not really at the asset level that I, that I deal with. Okay. So, so I didn't even have enough to fail <laughs> with her. I was I couldn't even fail right. I I didn't have the kind of assets that she needed to think I was worth her time. And she was really nice about it. Right. She was really really nice about it. You're and not then, rich enough for me to help you. Yeah, you're not rich enough to fail in my practice. Lovely. So, but she then said, "Here's this guy. You know, in the nicest again possible way, he works with people like you." And I called the guy up, and he was calm, and he was friendly, and he listened to all the situation that I've just laid out for you. And he said, you don't need to file for bankruptcy. You need to lose that apartment. Yeah. You're making decent money. 
you don't have terrible debt. You only have one big debt, this apartment. It's killing you, this apartment. Yeah, the apartment's killing you. You need to get out from under the apartment. And he guided me through the process of allowing the bank to take the apartment back. Okay. And defaulting on the apartment. And it was, you know, hard. And the bank took it. And then some months later, I heard from the people that bought the debt from the bank and wanted me to pay $40,000 that the bank was still owed, to which, you know, I then called the guy again in the panic and say, well, this is where I filed for bankruptcy, right? Because I can't, I don't have this either. And he said, no, this is a debt collector. They have bought the debt at a steep discount. Oh, my God, of course. You can negotiate with them, make them an offer. Right. What kind of offer? Would, and he said, just, you know, come up with something. They are probably, they'd probably be happy with a quarter on the dollar. But how would you so, know that unless you had someone smart to talk to? Don't you think most so people would have taken out a loan to pay that back, that debt collector? It's, right. it's very it, it, hard. Well, a good advisor is the best thing in the world, and a bad advisor will strip you naked. Yeah. But this guy, Gregory, was just an angel. My wife calls him the angel. Even now, Gene says, oh, the angel. He guided me through that. I made the offer. They came back with a counteroffer. It was an amount that I could pay off, and we were done. And that's how you were able to emerge and, and start And then I'm able to emerge and start, you know, and, the, and all of a sudden the money I'm making goes into a bank account instead of a bank's account. Ugh. And all of a sudden we're, you know, we're making progress again. And you made it. Still tough. Yeah. And then we're st- we still have our credit card debt is high because when your boiler goes out, you can't just say, you know, we're going to put this off. Yeah. So that's thousands of dollars. It's going to go on a credit card. Your credit card's going to go up. So we were still building debt again. But um, when I got the job at the New York Times, for instance, we had bought a house in Tacoma Park, Maryland, in the year before we went into default on the apartment. And so we had this asset. And when, we, when I got the job at the Times and we sold it, we doubled our money on the house. This is, I sometimes, maybe that was karma. You had some real estate karma coming to you. Uh, well, it was nice. It was nice to get destroyed by a house and saved by a house. <laughs> and so that cleared our debts and started us off again. And then you know, some 10, 12 years later, the debt has crept up again. We're in trouble again. We're paying for college. Sure. We're, you know, we're, we're really in bad shape. And Gene says, we've got to sell this house. We've been in the house for this amount of time. Two of the kids have gone off to college. Joe's about to go off to college. Let's do this. And really, she's smarter than me. You know, I was like, well, maybe we can wait. Maybe we can do this. Maybe it's just, no, it's time to do this. And we didn't quite double our money this time after 15 years in this house, but we did okay. And again, wiped out the college debt that we had taken on. And um, they went to state schools. It wasn't like, you know, State schools aren't cheap these days either. They are not. But we were able to do fine. And so when you say, why was this the year? Part of the reason was that we had our heads above water finally. That's For the first time in a long time. And it was a good time to assess. It was like we weren't struggling. And I wanted to say, okay, what's the next 15 years look like? Sure. I got to tell you one more thing about the bankruptcy lawyer. Tell me. He never let me pay him a dime. Well, that, that was very nice. I would get him on the phone. I don't know why. I tracked him down and I asked him, why didn't you ever have me pay you anything? I mean, I asked him and he refused. And he said, because I didn't do anything. If I'd had to file paperwork for you, I'd have charged you plenty. That's what I do. But I was just giving you advice. It's also nice to give someone some good news. You know, it sounds like he was giving you 
maybe the first good news that of all of his whole day <laughs> was telling yeah. you you don't need to file for bankruptcy and you don't need to pay this debt collector the full amount. So it's nice to tell someone something nice. I think that he felt good about himself. <laughs> so let's talk more about your book. So tell me about the punch lists and how you managed to make those work for you. Well, we've been talking about my personal story. Yes. And personal stories are entertaining, interesting. Some parts of my story are funny. That's all great. But a story alone doesn't get you very far. Absolutely. I mean, yes, you can look at what I did and say, I will not do what those dumbasses did. <laughs> right? And that's, and that's a very good – that's a very good lesson. Being the negative example is a good lesson. But what I wanted was to also offer reporting and instruction so that the things we did right, other people can do. The things we did wrong, there's good advice on how to avoid it. And there are processes that you can watch me do and then read the punch list and then maybe take on yourself. So we got the will. We went out and we got a will. We dealt with a lawyer. We went through the process and I described the process and then there's a punch list on what you need to do to get a will. That's great. So what are some other financial documents that were scary that you managed to get through using process and cold lists? I figured out where my health insurance was and, how, uh, and how much life insurance, more important, how much life insurance I needed because – that changes from year from decade to decade. It does change. And here I was with pretty good life insurance provided through my employer with a little bump up in my paycheck, which is fine. I had no idea whether it was enough. Sure. I had no idea whether it was too little. And so I had to study up, figure out, okay, what am I supposed to have at this stage of my life? Well, it turns out that once you're in your late 50s, you might need less than you do if your kids are young, if college is I know. Ahead. That seems sort of strange. You think you need more as you get older, but that's not necessarily true. You have sort of – your kids are more likely to be independent. You might you don't need as much money for their care. That's exactly right. It's a safety net, not a casino. It's not about, <laughs> it's not about the jackpot. Right. But – and so I did two things. I looked for a new life insurance policy for myself because it seemed to me that I might be able to get a better deal than I was getting through my employer. Sure. You know, there are things that you can do, pay a year at a time, yeah. you know, other things that bring the cost A lot of people down. just default to what their employer offers them. And it might easier. be good. It might be good. But, uh, but I found a really good deal and I went through the entire process because you get a medical exam, you know, stuff happens. And that process, I lay out. This is what I did and then once again, there's a punch list. Here's what you do. Here's how you know whether you're in good shape or not. And then other parts of the book are really about what I went through to get smarter about money, to sort of confront the phobia and learn what I should have learned in my 20s and 30s by reading, by, you know, by talking to brokers, by talking to different types of brokers because there's a big difference between a regular stockbroker and a certified financial planner. Yes, that is true. I think a lot of professional athletes would, would attest to that. Yes. Would attest to what it's like to have fiduciary responsibility and or just responsibility to getting themselves paid. <laughs> and finding out whether or not this person has your best interests. So important. In, in, in working for you. Is this person really working for you or working for a beach house? <laughs> You're so, right. Yeah. What would you say to somebody who, you know, if you could talk to yourself in your 20s, you don't have a lot of money, you, can, you know, how would you tell that person to start planning for the future when you don't have a lot to begin with? 
Do I get to slap myself upside the head or is this purely verbal? Um, it's purely verbal. Okay. In that, be, be kind to our past selves. <laughs> you know, do I really deserve that? I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I, I was such a dumbass. But I did some good things. Right. And first of all, I would tell 20-something me to do what I actually ended up doing, which is if there's one point that you get a good raise, a really nice raise, use it. Don't spend it. Yeah. That's what you start your 401k with or your IRA sure. if you're independent. You take that money before you feel it, before you know it's there, yep. and you put it over here and then you forget it. So you don't feel the loss of it. Right. You're never squeezed by what you didn't have. And then even if you don't get that little bump, dedicating 1% of your income to an IRA or 401k is not painful for most people. I mean, look – if there's no money, you're going to be miserable. I can't make something happen that isn't there. Of course. But for most of us, 1% is fine. And with a lot of these folks, with Vanguard and others, Fidelity, you can then set an annual 1% bump, which will go invisibly. And at the end of 10 years, 10% of your income is going into this thing, which if you've made good choices, and by good choices I mean – Generally, index funds, that is funds that reflect a broad index like the S&P 500 that don't have a lot of management fees attached. Absolutely. So they make you money two ways. You're not trying to beat the market. You're trying to move up with the market up and down but mainly up. And you're not going to get your profits eaten up by fees. Those things, basic principles, nothing really complicated, can get you started. And if you start in your 20s, a lot of things are going to be easier. It is true, but you do need to have that conversation. And ideally, you have a parent or someone who can sit you down and tell you in a nice way when you're in your 20s, like, please do this. You, you, you'll thank me one day. You know, but, but if you don't have that person in your life, at least you have, a, you have this book to read. I would love for <laughs> parents to just hand a copy of the book to their kids and say, you don't listen to anything I say. <laughs> Everything I say is not interesting or important. This will get you there. On the other hand, that's a little self-interested. I, I, I understand that. But money is emotionally fraught, like I said. And parents have a hard time talking to their kids about money. Generally, I would love to see more parents have that conversation. Yeah. Well, they might have their own money shame and they have, might have trouble talking about it with each other. So how do you talk about it with your kids unless you have that real conversation first? And all of the emotion tied up in even the language – is somebody emotionally withholding? Withholding is a money word. You know, That's true. Um, is, is, is somebody, you know, stingy with their, you know, all of those things, it's money and emotion. It's tied up together. It's very hard to talk about this stuff. And you're right. If, if the, your parents have made mistakes, they don't want to discuss it. They, yeah. don't want, they don't want to look like they made mistakes. They're still trying to live like, you know, your hero. Or they don't want to pass bad advice on onto their kids or they hope their kids will make better decisions. Or they don't have any money to pass on or they just don't want to look stupid or just they don't have the answers. Or their own experiences yeah. have affected the way they invested. My parents were children of the Depression. Sure. That is, they were, you know, my dad was born in 27. My mother was born in 32. My mother insisted that my father not have a 401k IRA retirement fund. Everything that he saved was in a pension, Social Security, but that third leg of the stool, mm -hmm. the investments that grow, he couldn't do because she 
distrusted the stock market utterly. So how, when how he had could you ex- blame her at the time? It made perfect sense. And so when they saved money, they saved them in interest-bearing CDs, which is a really stable investment, mm-hmm. but it didn't save them nearly the amount of money they could have had. And, uh, and dad kept some mad money for playing stocks, you know, some stocks that he liked. And, you know, I don't, I don't think any of them really paid off for him. It was never something that he focused on. The things that he didn't focus on, I didn't focus on. I have two more questions for you. I could talk to you forever, of course, but tell me, so you are a person who didn't go to school for finance. I don't know if you consider yourself a creative person, but do you think that some people who don't go into finance just think of themselves as just being born bad with money and they'll just never, never be good at it? That is so interesting. I think it's true. I think that people see themselves as left brain, right brain. They see themselves as creative, not analytical. And if my career teaches me anything... It's that you can be a creative person who gets into the nitty-gritty of science and numbers and everything else, but I still have the artist's fear of money. (laughs) (laughs) That's a real thing. I think it's a real thing, and a lot of my friends who are very creative just don't want to think about it. So in writing This is the Year, one of the things I'm trying to do is to provide a book for the people that don't want to buy a book. Absolutely. And say, look, this is you. And yeah. you can read this and you can get a handle on this stuff. I think that's great. This is my last question. What would you say to somebody who has money shame, who is just – they're close to getting a handle on their money, but they're just not there yet because they're just – they still got all their envelopes in a drawer. The, they have some debt collectors calling. What would be some advice to someone as a wake-up call, but not a negative one, to say this is going to be your year to get your money together? The proverb goes like this. A lot of people call it a Chinese proverb. It is not, but it's still a really good proverb. The best day to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best day is today. That's beautiful. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. This was fantastic. Um, So just tell everyone the name of your book and where they can get it. The book is This is the Year I Put My Financial Life in Order, and you can get it just about anywhere. Well, I can't wait to dig into it and buy it for everyone I know. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Teach Me How to Money. Send us your questions at teachmehowtomoney at stashinvest.com, and we'll try to answer them on a future episode. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a review on the iTunes store, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Ready to start investing? Sign up for Stash and then enter the promo code PODCAST, and you'll get $5 to get started on your financial journey. Stash, it's your money, simplified. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from Stash to the listener. Neither Stash nor any of its officers, directors, or employees makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any of the information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Stash, and Stash is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of advice by Stash to the listener, nor to constitute such a person a client of Stash.